Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Turn to Matthew 5, 17. We're in our third week here on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17. And um, we're going to talk about Jesus' connection to, to the law, to the Old Testament. So, starting in 5.17, Jesus says this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to your word here, we're just excited that we have your word. We have the words that came from your son's lips about 2,000 years ago on that Sermon on the Mount, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that they would ring as powerful and as true today as they did on that mountain, Lord. And we pray that your spirit would come and enliven our hearts to receive it, to be excited about the things in your word, Lord, to, to be eager to apply them. And I thank you for these people, Lord, that they would come out this morning to want to hear from you, Lord. That was you stirring them up to be here. Nobody's here by accident, Lord. This is by your design. And so we pray, speak to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. And so um, here we are on our third week on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, Jesus wants to set the record straight about something. You can see that from the beginning. He says, don't think this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He wants to make clear that his relationship to the Old Testament scriptures. And when he says law and prophets here, it's a way of speaking about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is something that he has not come to abolish. And you might wonder, like, why would his hearers even think that, you know? Why would he think that his hearers might think that? And if you, if you look at Jesus' life and you look at his teaching, you kind of understand why people in the crowd might think that he's come to do something entirely new. I mean, he, when he came and the way he taught and the things that he did, he went against the, the religious traditions of that time. His life and his ministry were highly unorthodox. I mean, he would say things like, truly, truly, I say to you. You guys know in the synagogues when somebody would teach, the, the, the leaders, the elders of that synagogue at the end would say, amen, amen, or truly, truly. They would like stamp it like, yep, that's biblical. Jesus started that way, okay? He didn't wait for anybody to tell him it was biblical. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is God's word. He forgave sins directly. I mean, we, we don't think about how strange this is, but imagine somebody sins and they confess their sin and, they, and it's against somebody else and, and Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Like, what authority does he have to do that? Um, he also uh, cast the money changers and the merchants out of the temple. This was something that the religious leaders thought was okay. He cast them out of the temple. He spent way too much time with people that, that good Jewish teachers were not supposed to spend a lot of time with, like women. He's had a lot of female disciples. Um, he was way too close with tax collectors and sinners. He healed on the Sabbath. It drove him crazy. It was driving the religious leaders crazy. One thing you got to realize, guys, is that Jesus never broke an Old Testament rule. Ever. But what he did do is he broke the Jewish religious traditions all the time, intentionally. Seemed to rub their noses in it. Okay? He he was not afraid to do that. And guys, these people, these religious leaders of the time, they had a hard time telling between their traditions and the scriptures. 
And, and a lot of us do that, right? We have all these things we've added, and when somebody breaks that, we're like, ooh, that's not biblical. Really? Where? You know, Jesus is drawing all this big crowd of unconventional followers. He's got this unconventional teaching. And keep in mind, guys, this is a time of great unrest in Israel. There's been a 400-year period of silence. So there was the, uh, the prophet Malachi, and he prophesied. There's a 400-year period where there's no new prophecies. There's nothing going on. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist is the next voice you hear, right? And this is a time, guys, of intense, um, in of intense, um, uh, turmoil, where there's Roman occupation, it's a powder keg, and all kinds of charismatic leaders and teachers and revolutionaries and supposed messiahs are coming in to fill in that gap. They're all trying to get people stirred up and lead them. And so Jesus comes, and you can imagine why they might be thinking, is he, is he throwing away the Old Testament? They wouldn't call it that. Is he throwing away the scriptures? Is he trying to do something entirely new? And guys, there have been in church history people that have done that. You think of uh, in second century, there was a guy named uh, Marcion, not Martian, Marcion in the second century is a guy that believed that the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament was not the God of Jesus. And so he removed the Old Testament from his Bible. And then he went through the New Testament and removed all the references to the Old Testament. And you can imagine that doesn't work. It's like a, a surgery where you remove vital organs. The patient does not survive. Okay? And so that's what he did. And, and, and he was a heretic, and it's been done since. But sometimes, guys, we're no better. We're no better sometimes because we don't really know what to do with the Old Testament. We're, we're kind of uneasy about what it's for or how it relates to Jesus. Look at how much of this is Old Testament, guys. And this is with the concordance at the end and a few maps. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. We need to know what to do with this huge portion of our scriptures, right? And so Jesus wants to set the record straight about that this morning. Jesus wants to set the record straight the same way he did 2,000 years ago. And he wants to show us, one, that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament for us. And then he wants to show us that he's come to fulfill the Old Testament through us. So first for us, then through us. How about for us? Look at verse 17. It says, do not, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Jesus hasn't come to abolish them. But he also hasn't come just to endorse them. He could have come going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. You know, the Old Testament's good. I'm all for that. He hasn't just come to endorse him. He's come to fulfill him. The Greek word for fulfill there is actually the word to fill up. So fulfill is great because it's got that fill in it, right? It's to fill up. It's this idea that somehow the Old Testament scriptures without Jesus aren't full. They aren't complete. Um, there's something incomplete about the, the prophets and the law, the whole Old Testament without Jesus. There's so many expectations, guys, that are, that are built up in the Old Testament that if Jesus didn't come, um, it, it just leaves you hanging, right? There's too many loose ends. Um, the Old Testament has this great plot development, but no climax and no resolution just leaves you hanging. And you know how it ends, guys? Look at the last part of Malachi. It ends like this. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, which would be John the Baptist, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It ends with, hey, I'm sending somebody. I mean, talk about to be continued, right? I mean, if there's no sequel to this, this is not a good story. Okay? This is an incomplete story without Jesus. What are some of those loose ends? I want to give you just some of the loose ends that are here, that unless Jesus comes, this isn't a story that works. First one would be the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. God deals out some curses. He deals out a curse to the serpent, who is Satan. And he says to the, to the, to the serpent, he says to Satan, 
that he will at one point send an offspring of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. Okay? He says that there's this seed of the woman, there's this one born of a woman who's going to come and crush your head. It's a promise that's made. And so Jesus comes, and he comes to rescue his bride, the church, from the tyranny of the serpent. As one author puts it, the whole storyline of the Bible can be put this way. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Right? That's the whole storyline of the Bible, because this seed of the woman would come. That's a loose end. It's left there. There's no answer to it without Jesus. The, the Old Testament doesn't fulfill that. Uh, there's the seed of Abraham. You know, later on, Abraham's told that he will, um, it says in Genesis, it says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and I will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, we know that the Jewish people did grow into a great nation. We see that even under Moses, that there's a huge amount of Jewish people. But where's this offspring that's going to bless all nations? It's not here in the Old Testament. It leaves it hanging. It needs to be fulfilled. That's Jesus. Or what about the Davidic king? I mean, this is one you can't get around. 2 Samuel 7, God gives this promise to David that one of his descendants is going to reign on David's throne forever. A human being is going to reign on his throne forever. Where is that fulfilled right now? If it isn't fulfilled in Jesus, the, the God-man who's, who's reigning now from his throne in heaven and will one day come down to make the earth great again. Right? <laughs> Better than it was before. Hey guys, on this, one thing I want to say is this idea that Jesus fulfills all the expectations of the Old Testament, this is something you should teach your kids. This is something when you're discipling somebody and you're talking about the Old Testament, it's something you should reinforce. Our curriculum that we're doing with the kids right now actually does this. And you guys who have done children's ministry know this, that at every point along the story. So when we talk about David and Goliath, it's not like, hey, David was really brave. He killed Goliath. If you're brave, you can kill the Goliaths in your life too, right? It's not that kind of a story, right? Goliath points, or David points to the ultimate um, king who will come and destroy all, our ultimate enemy, the devil. And he will destroy sin and death and Satan. He, he is that ultimate warrior that comes looking weak, but able to defeat his enemy on the cross. And you guys can do this, too, with your kids. Like, if you've got younger kids, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is what our curriculum is based on, would be awesome for your kids. This is also a great gift for you guys to give to um, friends and family when they have little kids. Even if they're not believers, they'll love this book. It's got great um, uh, pictures and stuff to it, and it points to Jesus over and over again. My aunt was reading this to, um, to my nephew um, over and over and over again. She's not a believer, and she was hearing the gospel over and over again from her own lips reading this, which is such a cool thing, such a cool gift. That's something you can do with your kids. There's some other books that are great. Yeah, I'm doing it again. Um, this one's really good, the, the Biggest Story, and this is by DeYoung, and uh, it's how the snake crusher brings us back to the garden. So that whole idea of the seed of the woman um, crushing the head of the serpent there. Um, this one's good, The Garden. The curtain and the cross, um, also telling the big story of the Old Testament, but bringing out Christ in every part of it, showing us Christ. If you're a, uh, a big person and want to learn about that, this is a great book, David Murray's Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. And this is great. It goes through all the different parts of the Old Testament. shows where Christ is in there. Because Christ fulfills all these loose ends, guys. Um, what's another one? Isaiah 53 is another one of this. It's a promise an old, centuries-old promise of a, a, a man coming, a sinless servant who would suffer for the sins of the people. And I'm not going to get into that because Marcel's going to get into that next week, which would be so cool. The timing's really good. Think we planned this? We didn't plan this, okay? But it's really good timing. Okay, 
Um, and there's later ones to be fulfilled too, right? In the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, we have promises that one day God's going to gather people from all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages to live in his kingdom in a renewed world. This world made new. And we have confidence he's going to come through on tying up that loose end because of the magnificent way he's already tied up all these other loose ends. Every time Jesus has come through on the expectations the Old Testament set for him in ways that are, that are more than we expected, through his death, his resurrection, his life. Look at verse 18. It says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So cool. Not even the minutest part of the Old Testament will be lost until he accomplishes everything that's in there. And this dot, this iota, what it is is like one of them is the size of a comma, right? Not even a comma will pass away. The other one is the size of like, you know, a lowercase c and a lowercase e, the little line that makes the difference between the two of them? That's the dot. That's the iota. Those are the small details of the Old Testament that Jesus will accomplish um, before uh, the, the law passes away. And not one Old Testament expectation is going to be dropped or missed or reduced. God comes through on all of these promises, guys. Comes through on all these promises, sometimes bigger than he promised. That's one thing you'll notice in the New Testament. You'll go, oh, that's a fulfillment? Whoa, that's a lot bigger than he promised. He comes through bigger and he comes through better. Guys, the Old Testament scriptures have these loose ends that only Jesus can fulfill. And so when he comes and he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's saying, I've not come to drop the Hebrew scriptures, I've come to complete the story. Without Christ, the Old Testament scriptures are actually pointless. I know that sounds strong. It's a nice story, lots of promises, no fulfillment. But with Jesus, guys, it's the most satisfying story with the most satisfying ending. And that's the same thing. That is also true, guys, of the story of this world and the story of your life. Without Jesus, there will be no fulfillment to your story or the story of this world, no satisfying ending, no meaning, no purpose. Because, guys, there is an alternative story out there being told, right? It's a story of a world that is godless, purposeless, and meaningless. And a lot of times, try and put a happy face on it, right? And say, oh, yeah, you know, there's no God and there's no point to this world, but we can still make meaning. You can't. You're just making meaning. Meaning you make isn't real. You guys realize that, right? A purpose for the universe that you made up is just that. You made it up. Listen to Stephen Jay Gould and how he told the story. He was a paleontologist. He said this, We are here because one odd group of fish had a particular fin anatomy that could be transformed into legs for terrestrial creatures. We are here because the earth never fully froze during the last ice age. We are here because a small, tenacious species arriving out of Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by crook and by hook. And then listen to this. And this is, this is so true if his thing's true. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Right? That's the other story. The other story is that you're an accidental happening in a meaningless world with no purpose and no future. And to say anything else about it, guys, just isn't honest. Right? If there's no God and there's no creator and we're just here by accident, there is by definition no purpose to your life and no meaning. Um, you live, you strive, you die, the end. Astrophysicist uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said this. This is great. About our future. In five billion years, the sun will expand and engulf our orbit as the charred embers that were once Earth vaporized. Have a nice day. <laughs> okay, that was on Twitter. 
<laughs> he's great to follow. That's called uh, nihilism or nihilism. It's the idea that there is no meaning. And if you believe his worldview, that's the only reasonable conclusion, guys. Nihilism. Perfect for a guy named Neil. I mean, what else um, are you going to say, guys, if the world is purposeless, godless, meaningless, and you're an honest person? And there's a lot of dishonest people that will give you that story and then just say, hey, we can make this great, and we can make great meaning out of this. You can't. It's meaningless. But Jesus officer is a better story. You know what's cool about a story? It's true. Okay? It's a better story, and it happens to be true. And Jesus has shown it to be true, demonstrated it to be true by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. He's, he's shown it to be true by fulfilling the story. All the Old Testament expectations are fulfilled in him. And you know what else, guys? All the greatest expectations that any human being carries within them are fulfilled in him, too. Because we all yearn for there to be a future and a purpose and meaning, and that's because we were created that way. And the good news in Jesus is all those expectations are true, and he's going to fulfill them all. So first, we see that Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament expectations for us. Secondly, Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament expectations through us. What do I mean by that? Well, the Old Testament has promises not just about a Savior and the things he would do, but there are promises in here about the kind of people he will form, okay, which is you. There are promises about the kind of people he'll form. Form. A people who live out the commands of God in a deeper way than anything that happened in the Old Testament. Take a look at verse 19. It talks about, that's why there's all this talk about righteousness. Look at verse 19. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine the scene, guys. Jesus is calling all these people to himself, and there's like crazy people following him, right? There are all the outcasts are following him. You've got, you know, tax collectors. You've got sinners. You've got um, Gentiles. You've got people that like just aren't clean religious folk following him. And you can imagine the question that the religious people would have, which is, does he care about righteousness? Like, what is this hippie gathering he has here? You know, is this... Does he care about the righteousness of God? Does he care about the scriptures? And Jesus wants to make clear here that there, that there be no misconceptions about what his kingdom people will be like. They're not going to be looser and more casual with God's law. They're not going to be the kind of people that are less committed to holiness, that relax his commands in their lives and teach others to do the same, right? They're going to be a people, he's going to call out the most random, sinful, outcast people and transform them into a people that love him and live his law like's never been seen before. Isn't that awesome? And, and, and that's something that the Old Testament promised, and Jesus has come to fulfill that expectation through us. Um, Jesus went so far as verse 20. Verse 20 would have freaked people out, guys, when he says that your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. There would have been a gasp, guys, that ordinary disciples would somehow exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? The scribes were the experts on how to interpret the law. Okay? So they were perfect to go and like, boom, here's the law. They weren't perfect at it, but everybody thought they were. They were the experts at interpreting. What does it mean? Ask a scribe, right? The Pharisees were the top at doing it. Okay? Weird that you'd have different departments for that. But um, they were the top at doing it. How do we live this? Ask a Pharisee, right? And so when they hear this, they're like, how can this be? How can it be that a regular disciple would have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? Um, before I get into that, I want to take an aside. I know this is kind of weird. It's one of those deals where you go like, where did I put this? I'm just making an aside, okay? And the aside is this. What's the law for? 
what is the law for? I think as Christians, we have a really hard time with this. The law in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's clear that the law was not ever meant to save you. Okay? The law was never designed to be like, if you do these 10 things or you do these 600 things, you'll be saved. That was not what the law was designed for. It's clear in the Old Testament. It's clear in the New Testament. The law is not meant for us to earn forgiveness or favor or a future with God. Right? So what's the law for? Well, the Reformers talked about the law in three ways. And I want to give you these kind of three purposes of the law. I think they're really helpful. First purpose of the law that they talked about was that it is a restraint of evil in society. And you're like, hmm, that's interesting. It's a restraint of evil in society. Turns out that in every society, even ones that don't know or value God's word, there's a restraining of sin because God has put his law in people's hearts. And this is why societies, you know, people have made a lot of this. Why are, you know, kind of the moral codes similar throughout the world? They're similar throughout the world, it says in Romans 1 and Romans 2, because God has put some bit of his law in their hearts and given them a conscience, and it restrains evil. And this is great. This is why, you know, you don't need to have, like, 15 locks on your doors, a moat, you know, some pit bulls, and loaded guns everywhere, is because God has put his law, even in the hearts of non-Christians, and even in the hearts of people around the world, so that it restrains evil. Second purpose. Second purpose law you're very familiar with is, it shows us our need for Christ, right? The law causes us to lose all hope of earning our way to heaven, or earning our way into God's kingdom. And we get that, don't we, when we read through the Sermon on the Mount. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you never read through it and go, okay, cool, I got this, what else do you want me to do? Like, you don't do that, right? You're crushed by it. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to crush your self-righteousness and drive you to Christ. Paul talked about the law in Galatians 3 as a guardian or a tutor that leads us to Christ. And so the law has this kind of, it's a, a, a dating type thing. It's like, here's Jesus, here's you. The law comes and tells you that you cannot keep the law. You cannot keep it, and you need Christ. And so brings us to Christ. We need his righteousness as a gift. The righteousness comes by being united, joined with him by faith. But the third purpose of the law, I think, is something that we really need to think about as well. And that is, the law shows us how to intelligently love God. Don't you love that? That's the third purpose of the law. third purpose of the law is that it shows us how to intelligently love God. You guys have heard of love languages, right? This is kind of popular to talk about love languages. So there's, um, when you're in marriage or relationship or something... You know, there's this idea of love languages, that different people receive love in different ways, and it's important to know those ways, right? Uh, what are they? Gifts. Melissa would like gifts. Touch. Acts of service. Affirmation. Quality time. I think you got them. I think there's five of them, right? Good. Okay. And so these can be really helpful. It can be a helpful tool, right? You know, you have a relationship with your wife, with your husband, whatever, and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, like, I, I've told you I love you, and I think I've shown I love you. And then she says, you haven't shown that you love me in the ways that I receive love. And you're like, oh, this is a helpful tool. Guys, God's law works that way too. It's no good for us to just go like, well, the kind of God I believe in would want to be loved like this. That's not what we do, right? We want to know how does God receive love? What does God take as love? And God's law does that. Guys, God's law is actually a beautiful thing when we're not trying to use it to justify ourselves. I mean, you know, once you get to the point where you go like, okay, I'm not going to use this to try and earn my way to God, then you, then you can come back to the law and go, this is a beautiful thing, right? It's beautiful because it helps us to know how to love and serve God and others. Um, G.K. Chesterton talked about the law gives room for good things to run wild. 
The law is a protection. It makes life good. This is something, guys, for you to teach your kids. Teach them that the law can't save them. Teach them that only Jesus can save them. And then teach them that the law is something that shows them how to love God in response. And it's good for them. It's good to live under good authority, and God is the best possible authority. Okay, so the law doesn't have, but the law doesn't have the power to change us. I think this is one hang-up we get. Is it, man, if I were to memorize enough verses or I was just focused on the law enough, it would change me. The law can't change us, but it does show us where change is needed. And I love this analogy, but the, the law of God is like train tracks. Okay, so you got train tracks, and the train tracks show us what's the pathway, what's the pathway to love and serve God. But the gospel, guys, is the engine that can actually push us down those tracks. The law has no power to transform us. Only the gospel can transform us, and the law shows us the way to go. And so that's something that, that's what discipleship's about, guys. It's about learning to do everything Jesus has commanded, fueled by the joy we have in the gospel, the joy we have in being forgiven and adopted by him. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage is, as we live out that third purpose of the law, that the ordinary righteousness of ordinary disciples is going to be better. It's going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And we still have to ask the question, how can that be? Well, I'll tell you one way we're not going to do it is by doing more laws. Okay? Do you have any laws they had? 613? Okay, 613 laws. You can look them up. You can Google them. You can look through the list. And um, we're not going to outdo their righteousness by doing 614. Okay, that's not the plan. Jesus and the apostles have actually handed down to us a much simpler list of commands because Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples of how this list has become simpler. Some of the Old Testament laws were designed to set the Jews apart as a nation. We think of like food laws and the kosher laws, things like that. Like you couldn't have lobster. I know. It's crazy because they look like insects probably. They were unclean. Even entering the time of Jesus, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's in Mark uh, 7, 19. Later on, God gives Peter a vision to show him that everything can be eaten. Remember that? He has this vision where there's this sheet that comes down. It's full of animals. And he says, arise and eat. You know, that's one of some of our favorite passages. Arise and eat, right? Eat everything. I don't know if this was like, and he's like, oh, I can't do it. And he's like, eat them. You know, and he ate them. Circumcision, big issue in the New Testament was the, the idea of circumcision. You know, for new Christians in the 21st century, reading through Galatians and stuff, you're like, man, there's a lot about circumcision in here. Why? It was a big issue. It set the Jews apart in the Old Testament. In the New Testament times, the apostles made clear that this is something that isn't to be put on non-Jews to do. And guys, by the way, we're not just picking and choosing here. I think that's one thing that people from the outside will say, well, you know, the Old Testament says these things. You just pick and choose the ones you want to live. We don't. The apostles have told us, okay? It's very clear on circumcision and all those. These are things that have been handed down by Jesus and the apostles. This isn't us deciding, like, food laws, who wants to do those? No. We would do them if he said, but he said that we don't have to do those. And do you know why we don't have to do those? Do you know why the food laws were dropped? Mission. You realize that? For mission. These Jewish believers, these first believers, are largely Jewish believers, needed to go and reach people that were not Jewish, and you know what one of the most intimate things that you do with people when you meet them and you assess them with them is have a meal with them. And what an impediment to mission, guys, when you go, oh, can't come in your house. We'll talk outside. You know, don't get too close. Oh, I can't eat that, right? It was about mission. The reason, guys, why you can have lobster, the reason why you can eat bacon is so you can share Jesus with people, okay? <laughs> Just so you know, okay? So some of them were uh, to set the, the, the nation apart. Some of them were civil laws, 
You look through that list of laws, some of them are governmental laws. You know, things like when you build a house, if you got a, like a patio on top, you got to put a railing on that. Can't have people just falling off the edge. Like that's in there, right? Very important. Um, it's something we can still apply today, but it's not, you know, per se a law for us. Or what happens if your bull gores a, a person, you know, it kills a person. What do you do? You know, well, did the bull gore people in the past? Did you know this bull would gore people? You know what goring is? Their horns? Okay. And these are things we can use still, right? I mean, you know, we take responsibility for things. There's principles we can draw, even though they're not laws over us. Um, a couple months ago, um, Mason's got this deal where he's mowing lawns and stuff, and I was doing the edging for him, and I had the weed eater, and I'm doing the edging, and then all of a sudden I look up, and like my neighbor Lee, who comes to this church, I look over, and like there's like no window on the side of his uh, SUV. And I'm like, I'm in denial. I'm like, wasn't me, you know? And like, you know, there's glass everywhere. And I'm like, how did this happen? But apparently, like, the weed eater, and it's a dumb electric one, picked up a rock. It's, like, amazing. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a JFK shot or something. <laughs> it, like, went over there and shattered this thing. And so what do you do? Well, you know, you pay for it, right? You know, did your bull gore somebody or not, you know? It looks like it did. Um, some of the laws were ceremonial laws that had to do with the priests and the temple sacrifices and all that. And if you want to know what's done with that, read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He has done the ultimate blood sacrifice. He's done the final offering for sin. And, and God must have thought that that would be a hard thing for us to learn. So what did he do? Jesus prophesied that within a, a couple decades, the temple would be destroyed. It hasn't been rebuilt since it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Making it super clear, guys. Ceremonial law is done. There's no temple to do it in. But that's, but, but that's not abolishing the law and the prophets, is it? That's Jesus fulfilling them, right? That's Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, and then it's not to keep them, it's to fulfill them, to fill them up. Guys, these laws serve their purpose in propelling the storyline of Jesus. I was thinking about, you know, when the space shuttle takes off, there's all these parts to the rocket, right, that shoot the space shuttle up, and as it's going, each, the parts that are, that are no longer a part of it drop off, right? That's what we see with this with the way that Jesus has fulfilled these laws, that once they've propelled the storyline of Christ and he fulfills them, that he's, he's called them fulfilled and he doesn't have them live those particular ones. So, um, so how does Jesus cause our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? If it's not about like 614. Because, you know, if we got into that game, it'd be like, well, our church is 700 commands. And it's like, oh, really? We went to 1,000. Really? Which ones did you do? You know, like that kind of a thing, you know? It's not that kind of a thing, right? He, remo- he, he makes our righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees in two ways. First, he removes our insecurities. Secondly, he puts his spirit in us. First, he removes our insecurities. You guys got to realize that the scribes and the Pharisees, they seem real serious about the law, but in reality, they relax them. Okay, when he talks about relaxing the laws, he's talking to them. They relax the laws. I know you guys are surprised, but that's exactly what you have to do when you think you have to earn your way to heaven. What you have to do is you have to take the laws of God and you have to find ways to make them manageable. Like if I got to earn my way, then these laws can't be what they really say they are. They need to, the bar needs to be lowered. Does that make sense? You always have to somehow pretend that you're, you're rising up to God's standards. There's always that insecurity. Am I measuring up? And so you lower the bar. And, uh, but guys, if you are confident that you are righteous in Jesus and that your righteousness is Jesus' not yours, then you know what you can do? You can face your sin. You can look the law full in the face and not be afraid of it. 
You can see your shortcomings and deal with them. But that wasn't them. That wasn't what they were like. And what, what, um, what Jesus does in the rest of chapter 5, and we won't get into it now, we're going to do it later, but he gives six different examples of where the scribes and the Pharisees lowered the bar of God's law. There was the area of anger, right? They focused on murder, right? There was the area of lust. They focused on adultery. There was the area of divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving neighbors. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, blank, but I say to you, he's not taking issue with the Old Testament law. He's taking issue with the relaxed, traditional interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was taking issue with the ways that they had relaxed and softened God's law. And in all these cases, guys, the the scribes and the Pharisees, they were either trying to restrict the application of the command or give more exceptions. I'll give you an example. So with murder and with adultery, they, they, they focus on the act alone. Instead of focusing on anger, they focus on murder. Instead of thinking about lust, they, um, they focused on adultery. They wanted to ignore the deeper issues of the heart to make it more manageable. Or you look at in the case of divorce, they wanted to allow all kinds of permissions and exceptions and things like that. What are they doing? They're lowering the bar, right? Um, in the issue of oaths, you know, what's the deal with the oaths? Instead of insisting on 100% honesty, they got all wrapped up in this oath system, like how to do an oath and how to kind of convince somebody that doesn't really trust you, you know, that you're really telling the truth. Why, why do they have to do that? They have to do that because they're backing away. They're lowering the bar. Or the best one really is you shall love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Come on. It doesn't say that in the Bible, right? It says you shall love your neighbor. And they're like, well, let's define neighbor. You know, let's define it narrowly to the people that I actually love without any supernatural change in my heart. You know, isn't that great? That's what they want to do. They want to lower the bar so they can feel more worthy with God. But guys, if you're certain of righteousness before God, you don't have that insecurity. You can face God's law full strength and then you can apply that law to your lives. Secondly, Jesus changes us from the inside out. He actually gave his spirit to dwell within us. This is the second way that he gives us a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. I told you in the Old Testament that there were expectations about a type of people that Jesus would uh, create that truly live from transformed hearts. Because guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, they did it externally. Their righteousness was an external righteousness. And do you know what ran it underneath? Jesus deals with it in the Sermon on the Mount. It was human approval and superiority, judging other people. And you know what? You can do a lot of external good, hot-wired by human approval and a a feeling of superiority over other people. Like, instead of having your heart transformed, you can do all the right things and have your motivation be like, you know, well, I guess we're the only ones doing it. You know, I guess we're the only ones faithful to God. That'll keep you going for a while. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees ran on. Or you can be motivated by human approval. You know, you'll do it because people are seeing it. Right? He deals with that a lot with prayer and giving and all these things, right? This is convicting, right? How many things do we do? Righteous things so that they can be seen by others. You can be motivated by human approval and people kind of cheering you along for a time. Jesus wants to give us a deeper righteousness, one that's in the heart. And it was promised in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 says this. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, this is the promise. This was hundreds of years before Jesus came. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus produces a people with more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees because he transforms us from the inside out. 
His spirit has come to live within us and create a new heart that really loves God and really wants to live for him. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so much better? Isn't that so much simpler, right, than living the way of the scribes and the Pharisees? He gives us his spirit to make us the kind of people who love him and want to please him. Real obedience from a real transformed heart. Not more laws, but more love. Not merely external, but deep in the heart. As this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what was promised. This is true righteousness. And one of the main ways, guys, that, that, that Jesus does this through his spirit is by showing us the gospel. It's one of the main ways the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, causes us to stir up in love for him so that we're happy to do the things he's commanded, is by showing us the gospel, by showing us Jesus, who's our true righteousness. I just want to encourage you guys this morning. Are you resting in the righteousness of Jesus? Are you resting in the fact that you're united with him? You're connected with him such that all that he has is yours. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.